Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So we are actually studying, going to be joining or getting into the book of 1 John, and we'll be going through that for the next few weeks. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn to 1 John, that would be awesome. So when you open up your Bibles and you go through, you know, if you go into the uh, dictionary, or the dictionary, the table of contents, and you get, you know, contents, excuse me, you get all, get all the way down, you look at all the different books and stuff. Or if you open your Bible to the book of First John, the epistle, the letter of First John, it says First John, and and uh, so that is, we just assume that's the author. And it's interesting because if you read through the letter of First John, he never mentions his name in there. There's no greeting to a certain individual or something. Um, so, but it has been traditionally ascribed to the Apostle John, which was the son of Zebedee. And it's not without good reason, because we know that John was, uh, the Apostle, was one of the eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. He physically lived with Jesus three and a half years, you know, walked with him, ate with him, uh, traveled with him, uh, you know, saw him day in and day out for three and a half years, including touching him. We know that uh, John was uh, seated around at the Last Supper. He was the one who leaned against Jesus' breast asking who the betrayer was. And so John had this close relationship, even a physical, not, not in a weird way, you know what I mean, you know, as far as touching the Lord. And so um, that's why it says here, we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon and our hands have handled. The other thing that stands out in that verse is it's the fact that it says we, you know, we have seen, we bear witness, we declare. Well, that would infer that this writer is one of the apostles that was the eyewitness John characteristically, characteristically describes Jesus Christ as the Word. In 1 John, we'll see that in two places, in chapter 1, verse 1, and uh, 5, verse 7. In John's Gospel, we also see that in two places, in, in chapter 1, verse 1, and in chapter 1, verse 14. And then in the book of Revelation, which was also authored by the Apostle John, in chapter 19, verse 13, Jesus is referred to the Word. And so John, in particular, uses this description of Jesus, the Word. Why does John refer to the Lord as the Word and, and the Word of life in some places? Well, again, as I mentioned, he spent three and a half years, day in and day out, being taught by the Lord. We also know at the time of Christ's crucifixion, he was the only apostle that was there standing at the cross as Christ was being crucified. And he probably did hear all those utterances that the Lord Jesus Christ said while he was on the cross. We also know that while he was on the Isle of Patmos, the ladies are studying the book of Revelation. That's the book that John wrote. And, and John was on the Isle of Patmos on the Lord's Day, and he received a vision, a revelation of Jesus Christ. And he heard and saw the glorified, risen Christ. And so I think that's why he calls Jesus the Word or the Word of Life. So when was this letter written? Well, from what I understand, and I'm not an expert, but from what I understand, it was written after John's exile on the Isle of Patmos. He didn't die there. He was released from there. Uh, church tradition says that he went to, to Ephesus at this point, or at that point. And while he was in Ephesus is when he composed these epistles. 
By this time, John would have been a very old man. It was towards the end of the first century. Uh, I think it was around 90, 95, something like that is what they think anyways, is when this was written. What's interesting about that is if John composes after receiving that revelation of Jesus Christ, it would make perfect sense as to the contents of this letter, of what he wrote about. Because as I mentioned, John didn't write this to an individual. A lot of the epistles were written like Paul writes to Timothy or to Titus or, you know, uh, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. There's no, uh, there's no description of who this letter is written to. So it's written to the church in general, what I believe. And the thrust of this epistle, again, think about it. If Jesus, or excuse me, if John saw, of course, he was a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He witnessed the ascension of Jesus Christ. And then he saw Jesus in glory as it was revealed at the time in the Isle of Patmos. The thrust of this epistle is knowing with certainty. The word know appears, or its equivalent, appears about 30 times in this epistle. This epistle could be called the epistle of certainties. And uh, let me just throw this out here. Do you think there's a need for certainty today you think that's a relevant need today would this would this letter be relevant to us today man i tell you what the need for certainty in our culture was never more apparent than in the nomination of our just the, the last supreme court justice that was nominated this person was a nominated uh, appointed to make intelligent well-reasoned important constitutional decisions based on certainty they have to make these decisions based on certainty. And part of the nomination process, one senator asked this Supreme Court justice, what is a woman? Can you define a woman? You would think that that would be a kind of a certain thing you could define. Well, this person said, I'm not a biologist. And she refused to answer the question. Now, we know behind the scenes there's politics in that. I'm sure she knows, but there's politics behind that. But the thing is, guys, we are entering into a time in our culture where people say you can't be certain about anything. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's so prevalent. In fact, you know, you could say, what's up? And people say, well, you know, that's up for you, but it may not really be up. My definition of up is, you know, I mean, that's how absurd things are getting in our culture today. And that's where we're at, folks. I mean, that's it. It is bizarre. So the fact that this epistle deals with certainties is definitely relevant for you and I today. And this epistle addresses some very important spiritual certainties. For example, and I've got a list of them here, it's not all of them, but in chapter 2, verse 3, we can be certain that we know him, and John will, John will talk about that. We can be certain that we know him. Also in chapter 2, we can be certain that we are in him. Chapter 3, we can be certain that we know love, that we can be certain that we are of the truth. We can be certain that he abides in us. I mean, we can know these things without a shadow of a doubt. We can know uh, the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We can be certain about that. And boy, is that more relevant, you know, that is needed in the day in, our, in the church today, is knowing the difference between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Bible says in the last days there's going to be a great falling away. There's going to be a spiritual deception. That's we even see it now in the church, the universal church today. 
We can be certain of the spirit of truth and error. We can be certain that we abide in him and he in us. And we can be certain that we love the children of God. So there's so many things that this, that this epistle makes, tells us. Hey, you can be certain. You can know this. Listen, born-again believers in Jesus Christ should never be uncertain about any of these things. We should know. We should know because we have God's word. And that's what John is going to talk about in this epistle. So this epistle is definitely relevant for us today. John also states his purpose for writing what he does. In chapter 1, he mentions the, one of the purposes that we could have fellowship. That's what we'll be talking about this morning, fellowship. He also writes that we can have joy. That's one of the reasons why he wrote this. In chapter 2, he wrote these things so that we may not sin and that we may not be deceived. And in chapter 5, boy, what is that an important thing? That we can know that we have eternal life. Man, we can know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. And we should know those things as believers. And so that's what John, that's the purpose for this epistle. And so one of the many certainties that John wants to convey, and he starts out his epistle, was the fact that Jesus is eternal and he's God. He is God. He existed from eternity past and he exists into eternity future. There's only one that ever does it. That's God. So beginning with verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Now, John was a relatively young disciple when he met Jesus. He and his brother James, they are known as the sons of Zebedee. That was their father. Zebedee, they had a fishing business, so they were fishing men or fishermen, I should say. Um, because they were young, we see in, in some of the gospel accounts that they, they were very zealous. And uh, they had youthful zeal, perhaps maybe with a, without knowledge. But at one point, Jesus gives them the nickname Bo, Boanagers, or Boanages, I don't know, B-O-A-N-E-R-G-E-S, so you can pronounce it any way you want. Um, but it, it, the nickname meant Son of Thunder. Which is interesting to me because, you know, when someone gives you a nickname, they know you, right? I mean, they, 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 they're familiar with you. They've seen how you act, so you give them a nickname or something. Um, my nickname was Donut when I was growing up, but I don't know why, but anyways. <laughs> yeah, anyway, well, anyways. <laughs> I had some other nicknames, but I can't say them here at the pulpit, but... <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, what I'm getting at was that Jesus, I mean, this isn't a casual acquaintance. Oh, I know Jesus. I, you know, I've, I'm one of the 12 that kind of walks. Jesus knew John, and John knew Jesus. And so it wasn't in a casual acquaintance. John also spent three and a half, like I said this a couple times now, John has spent three and a half years eating alongside the Lord, walking with him, listening to him, and watching. You know, it's one thing to listen to someone teaching, but it's another thing to watch them live out what they're teaching. John saw this. In fact, at the cross, Jesus entrusted the care of his earthly mother, Mary, into the hands of John when he was crucified. So John knew Jesus as a man, as a teacher, as the Messiah, 
But he also came to know Jesus as the Son of God and Lord of all. And as I mentioned earlier, he watched Jesus live and die. He was a witness to his resurrection. He was a witness of his ascension. And he saw him glorified in heaven when he had the vision when he was on the Isle of Patmos. So one thing John was certain of is Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Verse 2. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That life, he calls it the life, was manifested. That word manifested means to render apparent or to show, show forth. And another certainty that John conveys, not only is the Son of God eternal, but eternal life, real life, is only found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. John knew that. Jesus said, and these are all quotes out of John's different things that he wrote. Jesus said in John chapter 5, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. In John's uh, Gospel chapter 8, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Later on in that same chapter, he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. In Revelation chapter 1, Jesus, speaking to John, says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Towards the end of Revelation, Jesus again speaking says, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. John heard and saw all this. And so he's writing this epistle. And you can be certain that Jesus is God. You can be certain that Jesus is Lord, and that Jesus is the life. And there's only eternal life through Jesus Christ. So now in verse 3, John explains the first purpose for writing this epistle. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So what's the first purpose? The first purpose of this epistle is that you might have fellowship. That word fellowship means to share in common. It's koinonia. If you've ever heard that Greek word before, koinonia, to share in common. It means partnership. It means communion. It means association. And so what John is basically saying here is, is what we apostles have experienced, we declare to you that you also may believe and have fellowship with us. And then he goes on to say, and truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, if you have fellowship with the disciples, with the apostles, because they, they have put their trust in Christ for their salvation, then we also have fellowship with who they have fellowship with. They have fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and so we do too. Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That applies to any born-again believer in Jesus Christ. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
All born-again believers are called into fellowship, not only with the Lord, but also with all other born-again believers. In fact, that's the one thing that we have in common. Look around the room. We are from different places. We've got different backgrounds. We have different personalities, different likes and dislikes. But what th why are we here? Why are we gathered here together? We have one thing in common. We have that fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ because we're all born again. I pray that we're all born again believers here. We have that fellowship. That's why we're here together. That's what we share in common with each other. So the first purpose of writing this epistle is that we might have fellowship. The second purpose for writing this epistle, and it comes right on the heels of, this, of that first one, is in verse 4. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. The second purpose for writing this epistle is that you might have joy. Now I want to be joyful. I want to have joy. Well, it's interesting that it piggybacks right after fellowship. Why? Because fellowship brings joy. Fellowship brings joy. David understood this. In Psalm 16, 11, he said, In your presence is fullness of joy. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, in chapter 10, verse 25, exhorts us. He says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. And I know as a pastor, I'll typically, the application is, you know, we're to be gathered here like we are this morning, corporately worshiping the Lord together. You see, the, the reason why it's important is because isolation robs you and me of our joy. It does. Isolation robs us of joy. Why do you think when you're in sin, you've committed, maybe you're backslidden or whatever, the last thing you want to do is go to church. The last thing you want to do is be about people that are talking about the Lord and praying and rejoicing and stuff. You don't want that either. You don't want that accountability or you just feel so miserable. You're like, I'm not even worthy to be around these people. That's a lie from the enemy. He wants to keep you isolated because he's a thief and the thief is nothing, is, he's a, to kill and destroy and to steal. And he wants to steal your and my joy. That's what he's out to do. And assembling together, fellowship with one another brings joy. Now, assembling ourselves together in fellowship is important. And, but it's also important outside the walls of this church. Because it's not just us gathering here this morning. It's throughout the week encouraging one another, being in fellowship with one another. Many of people are doing this. You know, when we started our fellowship here, we started with uh, just a couple couples, two, three couples at the most, and, and uh, we would meet, and you know, we met for Bible study, and then, and then what we started doing, and at that time Dan and Tracy were coming to our church, we started going out to their house, uh, boy, it seemed like every week, and we just fellowship, man. We play games, play cards and stuff. You get to know who's competitive and who's not. You know, who cheats and who doesn't cheat. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> hey, we're Christians, but we're card. You know, when it comes to cards, you know, everything's off the table. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But seriously, you know, what we were doing at that point was we were trying to build relationships. And it's important. And I've encouraged people, man, you know, you're gathered here, but also be involved in people's lives throughout the week. It's so important. But here's a challenge for each one of us. 
because you know sometimes we get into these fellowship we got these group of people that you know that's we love hanging out with them so we do that here's a challenge include others into your fellowship include others into your fellowship seek out the lonely the stranger and the visitors seek them out go out of your way to include them in fellowship and the reason why is because everyone wants to know that they're wanted that they're appreciated they want to know that and when they don't feel that that's 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 takes away from their joy give people an opportunity to decline the invitation but invitation but don't assume make the invitation and when i'm talking about fellowship of course i'm not only talking about just doing fun things together i mean it's great that we do that doing fun things together or sharing a meal but as it says in that verse in Hebrews 10:25 encouraging one another and and how can we do that well you could be studying the word of god together getting together and just doing a bible study together or getting together and praying for one another i know some women here in the fellowship are doing that. that's wonderful praying for one another encouraging one another or hey even coming alongside and helping someone and and helping them with the job that they've got going or whatever just working alongside them why because fellowship brings joy and so it's just a challenge for all of us and now john wants to address a certainty something we can know beyond the shadow of a doubt see a lot of professed christians say that they have fellowship with god but here's the test how can we know with certainty that we are in fellowship with god and that's what John's going to talk about now. Because really, the, the, I, I titled this message just on the cuff this morning, The Test of True Fellowship. Are you, are you really in fellowship with the Lord God? Well, you can know that with certainty this morning. Verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from him and declared to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. There's a big difference in saying something and doing something. We may say we have fellowship with him, but do we really? That's the test. Well, we're told here, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we walk in darkness, we're lying and we're not in fellowship with God. And so true fellowship with God is dependent on whether we are in darkness or in the light. So what does John mean by the darkness? Well, John's going to identify two causes of darkness in a person's life. We're only going to look at one of them this morning. But the first cause of darkness is sin. God is light and sin is darkness. It says verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So to walk in the light, what does that mean, walking in the light? That means living our life in the light. And that means not living our life in sin, practicing sin, not living in sin. The reality is, none of us are in fellowship with God apart from Jesus Christ. Someone could say to you, oh yeah, I've got a relationship with God. Well, oh yeah, is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? No, <laughs> sorry, you're lying. You don't. You don't have a relationship with God. You can't be in fellowship with God apart from Jesus Christ because remember, fellowship means to share in common. 
to partner, to be a partaker, to be in communion, association. And the reality is we have nothing in common with God. We are sinners in the darkness. God is holy. He is, he is light. He's not in the light. He is light. And Paul said this in 2 Corinthians, what communion has light with darkness? In Amos 3.3, 3, can two walk together unless they are agreed? So apart from Jesus Christ, you can't be in fellowship with God. Jesus Christ brings us into fellowship with God. Colossians 1 verse 21 and 22 says, And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So how does he bring us into fellowship with, his, with the Father? The Bible says, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We just celebrated Easter. Jesus Christ took our sins upon him, bore the price for our sins, and in exchange, he gives us his righteousness. And so when God sees you and I, we're in fellowship with him because he sees a holy person because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what brings us into fellowship. That's where that fellowship comes with, with God. So he continues here in verse 9. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now we're going to be dealing with this certainty again later on in, in 1 John. But I want to draw your attention and you could just, well, take my word for it. You don't have to take my word. You can dig it, look into it in chapter 2. But in chapter 2, John is writing, he's addressing, he mentions my little children. And one of the things he says is their sins are forgiven. My little children whose sins are forgiven. He also calls them brethren, brothers. He also addresses fathers who have had a long-term relationship with the Lord and young men who have overcome the devil. And then later on, he talks about those who have an anointing of the Holy Spirit abiding in them. In other words, this letter is written to Christians. This is letter is written to born-again believers. Listen, that is a very important point because I know some people differ on this. Born-again believers, as long as they are in this flesh we still have a battle with our old nature. It's just that's the reality of life. We still have a battle with the old nature. It's important to know because believers can still commit sin. Yeah, I'm born again. I have a relationship with the Lord, but I still sin because that old nature, man, he doesn't go down easy. He's always trying to come back up and, and reign in my life. He always is. There's a battle that goes on. And sin breaks our fellowship with God. And a break in fellowship, God results in a lack of joy. You know, the thing is, sin promises joy. Man, you can be so joyful if you, if you participate in this sin. The problem is, that joy, it's a counterfeit. It's fleeting, and it ends up just producing sorrow and eventually death. Sin breaks our fellowship with God. You know, we even see it in human relationships. If, if I sin against you, if I do something that's just, man, I, just, I did something terrible, what does that happen to our relationship? I guarantee that breaks, there's a break in our relationship. 
There's this distance that happens when I sin against you or you sin against me. There's that. So we see that even in, even in human relations. It's no different in our relationship with our Father, our Holy Father. When we sin, that fellowship is broken. But praise the Lord for 1 John 1, 9. I love that verse. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what do we do? We confess our sins. We're brought back into that close relationship with the Father once more. Because there's nothing in the way. Man, that's beautiful. It's the same with our relationships with one another. You know, if I sin against you, man, if I go to you and I apologize and I say, please forgive me for sinning. I do that with my wife all the time. Please forgive me. You know what she does? She forgives me and that fellowship is restored. I mean, we should be forgiving one another. Sometimes we struggle with that, but we should be. But praise the Lord. We go to the Lord God and say, Lord, please forgive me. He's faithful. And he's faithful. He's going to do it and he's just. He'll forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So here's the third reason for writing this epistle, that we may not sin. Interesting, if you read that, the fact that he says that we may not sin, why does he say that? He says it because it's possible for us not to sin. It's possible for us not to sin as born-again believers. How is it possible? It's only possible if you're living your life 100% all the time, completely yielded to the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. If you're completely led by the Spirit, not walking in the flesh, if you're completely 100% yielded to the Holy Spirit all the time, it's possible for you not to sin as a believer in Jesus Christ. The reality is, there's a battle that rages in each one of us. Who's going to be on the throne today? Who's going to be on the throne this minute? (laughs) This next hour? Who's going to be on the throne? There's that battle that rages within us. And Paul knew it well. He describes it in Romans chapter 7. I find, excuse me, I find then a law that evil is present with me. The one who wills to do good. If he wasn't a believer, he wouldn't will to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. If he wasn't a believer, he wouldn't delight in the law of God. He's speaking as a believer. I delight, I will to do good. I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. There's that battle that rages in you and I as believers. And so it says there, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What is an advocate? The Greek writers use the word advocate, which, by the way, is the word parakletos. Have you ever heard that before? Paraclete. They use this, the Greek writers use this term, advocate, of a legal advisor, a pleader, a proxy, one who comes forward on behalf of and as the representative of another. In our culture, in our generation, we call it a lawyer. An advocate, the parakletos. It's interesting because that's the exact same word that Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit. Fascinating. God, the Holy Spirit, 
comes alongside, in fact, not only comes alongside, but in fact, he indwells the believer to aid him or her here on earth. That's what the Holy Spirit, he's, he's inside of us, aiding us to, 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 so that we may not sin. He's leading us, he's guiding us if we're submitted to him. Jesus Christ is our advocate, our Paracletus in heaven who comes to our aid when we sin and pleads our case before the Father. And notice it calls him Jesus Christ the righteous. I think it was David Guzik that said, said uh, uh, something along the lines of, uh, Jesus passed the heavenly bar exam. <laughs> he's the only one that's passed that exam, and he's, he's qualified as a lawyer for us in heaven. Verse 2, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. There's a fancy term we don't use every day, right? Hey, uh, you know, we don't, hey, I, was, oh, I don't even know how to use it in a regular term, but propitiation, what does that mean? It means atonement. It's the means of, a please, excuse me, of appeasing a holy God. Because scripture throughout tells us that God is holy. And God never changes his mind towards sin. He hates sin, by the way. And he never changes his mind towards those that are in sin. Man is never able to please God, a holy God. It's only the sacrificial life and death of Jesus Christ that atones for our sin and appeases a holy God. He is our propitiation. Christ died for the sins of the world, for the entire world, but it's effective only in the lives of those who turn to Christ and trust him for their salvation. So there's two more things that we can be certain of, and that is that we know God and that we are in God. And when I, when I read that in God, it's in the sense of fellowship. Verse 3, chapter 2. Now by this we know him, if we keep his commandments. There it is, it's pretty simple, isn't it? Verse 4. He who says, I know him, because a lot of people say things, <laughs> He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Christ is our pattern. You know, our salvation is not the end. It's not the end. It's like, you know, you, you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, boom, you're, you're done. It's good, man, awesome. You know, live your life, enjoy, you know, be prosperous and live, you know, healthy. Our salvation is not the end. It's only the beginning of a lifelong spiritual walk with Christ, of living a life with Christ and for Christ. And the very fact that he uses the term walking, see, walk or walking, it implies movement. You're not just standing there. You're, you're moving, and movement implies progress and implies change. If we say that we abide in Christ, and there's a lot of people that say you know, that they abide in Christ, then there should be a progression. There should be a change in their lives. You should be able to see evidence of that change, an ongoing change in their lives. Christ is our pattern. Let me ask you this. Are you more Christ-like today than you were one year ago today? If you were to take the calendar and go 365 days back, 
Well, you know, where are you at spiritually? How, how have you grown and advanced in your relationship with the Lord? You know, if you were to ask me, I'd say, oh yeah, definitely, man. I could, uh, Lord, I could see how the Lord's really, I'm a changed person. I've, I've been growing in the Lord. It could be true, but here's the ultimate challenge. Here's the ultimate challenge. Are you guys up for a challenge this morning? Here's a challenge. If you're married, ask your spouse that question. <laughs> hey, honey. Man, go back a year ago. Am I more spiritual today? Am I more, am I more like Christ today than I was a year ago? Because I guarantee they'll give you the truth. <laughs> I lie to myself. <laughs> I, I'm a great guy. If you ask, Just ask me. I'm a great guy. Ask my wife. You might get a little bit of a different opinion. I think she thinks I'm a great guy. <laughs> I'm not saying that. <laughs> She's a great gal. <laughs> but seriously, if you really, really want to know, ask your spouse. Oh, you're not married? Fair enough. No problem. There's a, there's a number of people here that are not married. If you're young, ask your parent. If you already have children, ask your child that. Or ask your brother or sister that. Because I guarantee family will be truthful with you. Family doesn't like, they don't, you know. You ask me and I go, oh yeah, I see growth in you. Because I don't want to offend you, <laughs> you know. Ask your family, man, they'll tell you. They'll lay it on the line. <laughs> You're a jerk. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm sure they won't say, that's my family. Okay, my family. <laughs> You're not a jerk. I'm sorry. <laughs> that was me. That's why I don't ask my family. <laughs> I don't want to hear it. <laughs> uh, okay, so here's, that's the challenge, man. If you like challenges, there's the ultimate challenge. So how can we know with certainty that we are in fellowship with God? The answer is, are we walking in the light? Well, the next question is kind of a follow. Well, how, how, do we, how do we walk in the light? What does that mean to walk in the light? Well, we need to be in God's word. You need to be, you know, that's, that's, if, it's a broken record here. You'll hear it from my wife when she's counseling. You'll hear it from me when I'm counseling. You'll hear it from the pulpit. Man, be in the word of God. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. Not just read your Bible, but read it and apply it. Be not only a hearer, but a doer of the word. So we need to be in God's word, obeying his commandments. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. If you're not in the word of God and you're trying to navigate this life today, <laughs> good luck. There is so much confusion out there. Nobody knows what the real path is. And if, even if they know it, they won't say it because they don't want to offend anybody. We know what the true path is through God's word, and we need that more than ever in our society and in our culture today. So let the word of God not only guide your path through life to keep you from sin, but here's the tough part, let it also expose your sin. And by the way, sin's not just outward disobedience. It can be inward rebellion or sinful desires. It's, it's our heart and our mind as well. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. I know when I read the Bible, and if I'm honest with myself and I'm reading the Bible, there's things I read and I go, whoa, I don't match up to that. <laughs> there's, there's a discrepancy here. And I have to go to the Lord and say, Lord, please forgive me. 
you know, and he'll reveal those things to you. If you're open and you want it and you want the truth, he'll reveal the truth to you through his word. And so as the word of God exposes the darkness of sin in each of us, it's pretty simple. Just confess your sin to God. And by the way, when you're confessing your sin, don't just say, Lord, please forgive me of my sins. I mean, I do that sometimes. Be specific. Because, you know, if, if you sin against me and you do something and, and then you just say, I'm sorry, I sinned against you. I'm commanded to forgive you. So, I'm gonna, but, but you know what I really want to know is, do you really realize what you did? I mean, do you know? I mean, can you, can you acknowledge what you did? That's what Christ wants us. That's what the, God wants us to do. Name your sin. Lord, I lusted. Lord, I lied. Lord, I, I, was, I hated somebody. Or whatever it is. I cheated. Whatever. Name the sin before the Lord. Because we do that with one another. Don't be vague. Name your sin. Confess our sin to God. And by the way, confessing means to speak the same thing. It means to agree with God about our sin. Lord, this is sin. This is disgusting. Please forgive me. Praise the Lord. He's faithful and just to not only forgive, but to cleanse. I love that. You're not just forgiven, but it's washed away. That's a beautiful thing. That's a hard thing for us as, as humans to do, right? Someone comes up to you and they, they do something terrible and, you know, you're a Christian, so you, you, it's like, look, God's forgiven me. How can I not forgive you? Because I've been forgiven. I don't want to be that wicked servant that wouldn't forgive the, you know. So, so I'm like, yeah, I forgive you. But sometimes it's, you know, you say it, but sometimes there's still that, oh, it's a little bit, there's that hardness. There's, like, there's that memory or whatever. There's still a stain there. But when you and I confess to Jesus Christ, it's washed away. And I love it. He's cleansed us from all, forgive us and to cleanse us from all iniquity. All iniquity. That means nothing. There's nothing that Christ can't forgive you and I for. Nothing. You can name what the worst sin. There's nothing that Christ can't forgive you for. And there's nothing that Christ can't cleanse us from. You don't have to walk around with a stain. You're not stained if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you've confessed your sin. You're a born-again, blood-bought, blood-washed believer. You're a saint, literally, in the eyes of the Father. So, are you missing joy this morning? It's possible as a believer to be walking around without joy. And I know some things happen in people's lives that are very sad, loss of a loved one. It's hard to be joyful in the middle of loss of a loved one. So those things do happen. But if you're in a state of lack of joy, because again, things happen in our lives here and there, but, but if you're walking around in a state of lack of joy this morning, if you're missing joy, joy comes from being in a right, right relationship with God and in fellowship with God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. You want to be joyful? Get right with the Lord. Get in fellowship with Him. Be in fellowship with one another, because that's how we... We're all sinners. No, I haven't seen a perfect saint... Well, I mean, you are perfect in the eyes of the Father, but you're not perfect in my eyes. <laughs> we see each other's flesh, right? Because we live amongst each other. But we're to be here. This is the church. The church isn't just a sanitized saints. <laughs> This is real life. 
but we're to be together. We're to encourage and build up one another. And so I, I pray that always for our fellowship. So the test of true fellowship. Are you walking in darkness or are you walking in light? That's, that's the one. The next week, we're going to talk about another cause of darkness in the believer's life. And I've got a hint for you. It's also sin. Okay, It's also sin. But it involves another aspect of our life, an area where we can kind of deceive ourselves. And so we'll, we'll talk about that next week. It's kind of a cliffhanger, so you come back next week. <laughs> Once you stand up, let's go, Lord, in prayer, and uh, I'll invite the worship team to come back up.